All right, cool. Thanks, Mary. Um, we're going to start on page 67 tonight in the fourth column of the fourth step. And just as an overview, we had we had covered the first part of the fourth step uh, the last couple weeks. Um, and basically, we, we know after the third step um, that self manifested in various ways is what had defeated us. We looked to the common manifestations. Those common manifestations are resentments, fears, and harms. So we're going to finish the fourth column of the fourth step, jump into fears, jump into the sex part of the book, um, and then follow up with harms. And I think uh, we should be able to get it all in. Um, so in the middle of the page, we if anyone hasn't ever seen a fourth step, we have some sheets here for you to see. But we have three columns. So I have the people I resent, the cause of the resentment, and how it affects me. And the book is preparing us on page 66 and 67 to get to the trick, which is turning it and putting the focus on ourselves. So where it says referring to our list again, that's where we're going to start. <clears throat> referring to the list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, which is the first three columns. We resolutely looked for our own mistakes. So this is the instructions for the fourth column. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Um, right there. That's the essence of the fourth column. It's the first time in my life that in black and white, it was pointed out to me that I had character defects. And these were the basic character defects that they pointed out. Now you can get really wide and, and drill down into all kinds of other character defects. But at its core, these tend to be the ones, right? Where am I being selfish and dishonest and inconsiderate and full of fear? And an example here, when I did my fourth step, you know, I was resentful at my boss in column one. In column two, the cause, he fired me. Um, in column three, how did it affect me? It affected me emotionally, my material security, my ambitions for my life. You know, it affected me in certain ways. And then I got, and I was mad at him, and I felt hurt. And then I looked at the fourth column, and they asked me, where were you selfish with your boss? And when I really thought about it, I hadn't showed up for like three weeks. I stole <laughs> money from him. Where was I being dishonest? I was changing facts and circumstances and blaming the fact that I didn't have money to go out drinking because he fired me. Instead of looking at the fact that I got fired because I cheated and lied and didn't show up to work and I destroyed this guy's private business. Um, is Am I uh, filled with self-seeking, which is the opposite of God-seeking? Absolutely. And did that whole situation bear out in fear? Is the character defect of fear driving a lot of what I did? And for me it was because I was always afraid of getting caught. So if you look at it, in the inverse, if I was unselfish, honest, considerate, fearless, and humble with my boss, I never would have done the stuff that I did to get fired in the first place. So therefore, this is all um, on me for the most part. And I started to figure that out as I got to the fourth column of the fourth step. And that's not going to hold true for everything. But 99% of what I, I wrote down, I ended up finding out later, was of my own making. Um, um, I wanted to say one thing that yeah. helps me with the fourth column. When I first had to do this, I did not know how to find my part because I could easily identify what someone else did to me and I could even find out how it affected me, but I couldn't see how I was selfish or dishonest or self-seeking. Um, and there's two questions that I wrote down in my book. One is, how did I create the situation? So did I do something to make this happen? Did I put myself in a position where my boss was resentful at me and did something that made me you know, get in this situation? If I did not create the situation, the other question I ask is, how did my behavior change after I got resentful? 
So once this person did something to me, how did I then behave? And usually when you hurt me, I would hurt you in my own ways. And I wouldn't like come to you and be like, that hurt my feelings. I would do something sneaky and manipulative and quiet behind your back to get back at you. And I would do these little passive aggressive ways to like not show up on time just to piss you off. And so that question helps me find out my part. Yeah, so in the rest of that paragraph, um is what Carly was just alluding to, just a couple of questions to get, get your mind working. Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard mm -hmm. the other person involved entirely because we're looking at it from a different angle. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set right these matters straight. I know some people like to write down some other things like their faults. To me, the faults are the character defects. And, and again, it's notes that I'm writing down, not a huge novel, so that I can go sit down in my fifth step and have a really easy way of walking through these columns, right? Yeah. So I don't, have to, I don't have to write a diary for every single person, just a couple notes. And something that I wrote down in my book right next to this part, because it keeps telling me that the inventory is mine. Where, where is it my fault? I wrote, time to start taking responsibility for our own behavior. Because this was the changing point for me. This was a crossroads. Because I always had a reason why I was mad or I was hurt. And it was your fault. And then when I did this inventory and I found out that I made decisions that placed me in the position to be hurt, that was when I realized that I needed to be responsible for my own behavior and my own feelings for the rest of my life. And that was when everything changed for me. Yeah, another um, example, sometimes people will get stuck and say, well, I did something, or I had a situation happen that was not my fault at all. Someone's molested, someone is raped, someone is harmed in a certain way, but they carry that resentment for years and years and years, and they nurture it like a child, and they, they grow with it, and they use it as an excuse in their lives, or whatever the situation is. And I would never disparage anybody for any of that. But the reality is that's a resentment that will kill. So what do you do with it? Um, I know for me, I had some things like that in my fourth step, and I had to look at that fourth column. Where was I selfish and dishonest and inconsiderate and full of fear with taking that event and turning it into a lifetime? Mm. Um, An excuse. And total excuse for everything in my life, and I don't trust people, and this doesn't work right, and I'm always the victim. And that became the thing that, you know, one event that can happen in our lives decades later, we've just frosted our whole lives with it. But the fourth step gives us an opportunity to at least start the process of changing that. And it doesn't happen overnight, and it might take years, it might take another two decades. But this is the starting point for situations that were not of our own making, but are still resentments that cause us harm. And the next part is going to take us to the fear inventory. The cool thing about the way that these sheets are laid out, that it's just taken directly out of the book um, from 65. We don't like make anything up is this four column inventory is how we're going to do all four parts of the four steps. So the next inventory is about fear and we're going to start with um, what am I afraid of is the first column and we're going to read it through that. Why do I have this fear? And then the same what is affected and what was my part. So I'll start reading. It says, notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties of Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer and the wife. This short, short word I underline sometimes touches about every aspect of our lives. And Kevin had pointed out to me, and I circled this word, was. It was an evil and corroding thread. So they're talking about it in the past tense, that it no longer runs my life. And I'll tell you that I've never had a day in my 19 and a half years of sobriety where I 
didn't experience fear. There's never been one day where I was like, wow, I had a whole day and no fear. But when I have fear today, I have tools like the 10 step and meditation and prayer and action I can do to walk through it. The fear is no longer controlling my life. It says the fabric of our existence was shot through with it. And above the word it, I wrote fear. Fear set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. So that's (laughs) taking me back to that victim mentality. Like, I don't know why this happened. One of my biggest fears was I'm afraid that I'm going to be alone, that I'm never going to find a, a relationship. Why do I have this fear? Because every single guy I choose cheats on me. And then what does it affect? It affects everything and what's my part? And when I found out in this fear inventory that my part was I keep choosing people who are known to be people who are not monogamous. I keep choosing people who tell me I don't want a relationship with you as one-on-one, who like, are telling me honest things and I'm dishonestly manipulating the truth because I don't want to be alone, so I settle, and then I end up getting hurt. It says, um, but did we did, did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? So we're talking about that self-seeking part of us that um, fear is driven by. It says, sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seemed to cause more trouble. So now we're going to do, do just what we did in the fourth the four columns of the resentment, we're going to do that with our fear. It says, we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper even though we had no resentment in connection with them. And it says, we asked ourselves why we had them. So that's the second column. So the first column is, what am I afraid of? And we do that down in a row, like in a column. So I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of never being successful. I'm afraid of not being able to be sober in AA. I'm afraid of no one ever liking who I really am, all that stuff. And then it says, why do I have the fear? And then I underline, wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? And something that was introduced to me um, that blew my mind about my fears was this guy in AA said to think about the things I'm currently afraid of. And I had like a list, um, which all of us I'm sure do. And he said that fear happens when one of my basic instincts are threatened and I'm not relying on God. So I'm afraid about finances And I'm afraid that if I don't find another job, I'm gonna not be able to pay for my bills, and so I'm gonna have to be in this situation. And I'm not relying on God, I'm just trying to figure it all out by myself. And that's why I get afraid, because I'm not using my tools, and I'm trying to run the show myself. Can you say anything about that? Sure, and it's also, they're talking about the state of fear. So we can have little fears throughout the day, but when when they morph into something bigger, and they start becoming the way that we live our lives, that's what we're inventorying, right? Because we'll get to the fourth column where fear is a character defect that is attached to the state of fear that we're in. So for me, I was afraid that I was gonna get thrown out of school. So why did I have the fear? Because I cheated all the time. (laughs) And and I got caught all the time. So it affected all these things in the third column, my self-esteem, my emotional security, my ambitions, both social and security based. And then, you know, where was I being selfish? I stole the test out of the teacher's drawer. Um, was I dishonest? I stole the test out of the teacher's drawer. Was I afraid? I stole the test right out of the teacher's drawer. And, um, and, and it was totally inconsiderate. So what I find is that fear is, like Carly said, it's a normal, everyday human emotion. We're always gonna have fears. They're just gonna happen as part of life. But when we get bogged down in that state of fear, that's the stuff that we're inventorying in that first column. 
And they're about to give us a solution in the next paragraph, and it says, perhaps there's a better way. We think so. That's the first 100 men and women saying, we think so. For we are now, I underline, on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We just talked about that in the third step right before this, that we're now going to turn our lives and our fears over to something more than us. It says we trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. And this last part of the, the paragraph, this is one of those beautiful promises in the book where they're talking about this sacred partnership that we're going to talk about in the next part of the inventory. And I underline, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So there's a couple of promises here. One promise is that we're going to have calamity. The book tells me that. The other promise is I have to do these two things. I have to rely on God and do what I think God wants me to do. And then God's going to give me serenity while I'm in the middle of a storm. So now we're going to be facing life instead of walking away from it. Want to keep going? Sure. So we have that prayer there. And again, we don't, we don't have to be real fancy. We already have an equation. We have a four-column equation that we just use for everything else. The words change because Bill, as we know, was a literary student. And he knew if you said the same thing, the same word over and over again, you look like an idiot. But if you can change it a little bit, um, then you can look like you're really smart. So I think it's just the way that people were taught how to, how to write, number one. Um, and, but number two, it can sometimes confuse people in the program that think they have to do the fears differently than the resentments and then their sexual conduct different than the other two. And the reality is if you just have one equation and you run the same process through all of it, it makes a lot of sense. So let's just read that last paragraph and then we can jump forward. So we never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what we can do, what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear, so here's another fear prayer, and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once we commence or we begin to outgrow fear because we're turning the table on it. We're just starting to change it just enough to reach out to a higher power who we're trying to get in contact with. The whole purpose of doing this is to get into contact with a higher power to remove the mental obsession. Once the mental obsession is removed, we can stay sober because we're not telling ourselves a lie that we can drink safely and we're not believing the lie that we can drink safely. Therefore, we don't have to worry about the first drink. It is not an issue because we've been restored to sanity. That doesn't happen if we don't unblock ourselves um, to our higher power through resentments, fears, and our behavior. And that specific wording of that fear prayer really grounds me because I don't know what it, like one of my biggest fears right now is my career stuff and money. So I don't know what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. That's not new information. But when I get afraid and I do my inventory and I do my work and I say this prayer, God, what do you want me to be? I always know what God wants me to be. God wants me to be kind and God wants me to be useful in the moment where I am, right? God doesn't need me to figure it all out right now because no one's giving me any offers. God needs me to be kind to who I'm with and to be useful. So um, can I just say, while we're about to go into the sex inventory, why we're doing this? Um, so this for me has been the biggest change in my entire sobriety besides I don't, I no longer want to die. Um, so my biggest change was I no longer want to die and I want to live. That was from the steps. 
But my second biggest change, I think, was this area, and it happened in this room. Um, I used to love going over Joe and Charlie when they talked about the sex conduct because I thought it was funny and everyone got squirmy and I loved that there were people that were not comfortable with it because I love talking about sex and it made everyone uncomfortable. And um, there was a woman in this program who's not here, she moved to another state and she talked about this concept of sacred intimacy which I'd never experienced in all of my years of sobriety. I had no idea what it meant and she explained that it has to do with um, my sex conduct, my intimate life, my relationships being sacred, which means I don't share them with the entire world and I don't talk about them with the entire world. And I was at this kind of place in my sobriety where I really wanted to change and I just want to share what happened. I went away to Chicago to climb a t tall tower because I was uncomfortable with myself and I wanted out of my head. And I stayed with an old friend in AA who was not um, drinking, he was sober, but he was not doing any work. And in the past, I was very openly sexually talking about everything under the sun because I was just like that girl that loved to talk about everything and I loved how uncomfortable it made people feel. And when I stayed at his place that night, he thought he was getting that girl. And he thought that girl was no longer married, which I was, I was not, you know, I was no longer with my husband. So he thought, perfect, great opportunity for that talk now to become something else. And long story short, it was a really awful night. Um, something really bad almost happened, and I got terrified of how things went down. And I called one of the people I work with, and we did an inventory, and we realized, I realized, that I no longer could be a woman in AA who talked openly about sexual stuff just because I was comfortable with it, because it gave other people certain ideas that were not really what I wanted. And um, it was like this, um, this battle, what is that called that you wear? That armor. It, yeah, it was an armor that I used to keep people away from me and to keep people like enjoying my company, but not. I don't really actually want to do anything. And I, I remember what this other woman said about sacred intimacy, and I realized that I need to change everything about the way I behave about sex, about my own um, body stuff, about what I talk about. And it became a place where the person I'm with today the, is the only human being on the entire earth that I talk about anything that's intimate or sexual specifically because it's only ours. And for me, that it's a real honor to talk about this in this group because it it's good that it makes me uncomfortable to talk about it in a group now because it should make me a little bit uncomfortable because it's a big deal. So you wanna start? Sure, and I, I will say on, um, on the male side of the front in the room, I went through the exact same thing, which was um, feeling like a dirt bag when I sobered up and just really gross uh, about my life. And I remember um, my sponsor, I was 18 and a half when I did my fourth step. And I, um, so I was a young guy and, and I thought, you know, I was gonna write a list of all the women that I flirted with or I had contact with. And my sponsor sat me down and said, remember you're doing this to be spiritually fit, number one, which kind of changed the equation for me. But then he said something I've never forgotten. He said, you're, you know, you're also, as a byproduct, doing this for the wife that you haven't met yet. Mm -hmm. And you're doing this for the children who have never been born to you yet. This is about the way you live your life in one other area of your life. Um, and so very quickly I knew from the beginning um, with this old timer that we weren't talking about like sexual exploits or being gross with sexuality or snickering and laughing. 
that it was really about trying to come up with the ideal to be selfless and courageous and learn dignity and honor and self-respect. Um, and he also reminded me that you really can't, there's, you can't impact another human being more intimately than in the sexual area. So we, we tend to cause a lot of harm in this area, which what happens to us when we cause others harm, the mental obsession stays viral and we drink. Um, so it was about being sacred in general. And again, so we're talking about sex in the head. And you know, I wrote down all these notes a while ago, like my inventory of sexuality, sex in the head, using jealousy or leading someone on, one night stands, sexuality with no sex, using one to get to another. Just anything that relates to this is what they're talking about and trying to find that new ideal. But neither of us could have done that if we didn't actually inventory what we had done in the past. And the inventory is, so I felt like Kevin, that the first column of the sex inventory was everyone I was physical with. And that's not what the question says. It doesn't say, who were you physical with? It says, who did I harm? Which is why my parents were on my first, on my column for my sexual inventory because I used to dress really inappropriately for a teenager in high school leaving their house at night and making them really uncomfortable with my overt sexuality. And I harmed them. So this isn't about all the people I was with. It's about who did I harm with my sexuality. You want to start reading? Sure. Now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare and the other would have us all on a straight peppered diet. Clearly we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems, We'd hardly be human if we didn't, but what can we do about them? So again, he's just using um, treating sexuality like any other problem that we face as a human being in a human condition. And again, he's going to use some different words, but we have the columns right here. Who did I harm? What did I do? How did it affect me? And what were my character defects? So I have one. Who did I harm? Sally. What did I do? I pretended that I was really interested in her so I can get closer to Mary. Um, how, how did that affect me? It always affected my self-esteem, and I knew I wasn't doing something right. Um, and I led this girl on, and I hurt her. Um, it affected all my personal relationships, my emotional security, my acceptable sex relations. Um, can we stop for that? People always ask me, what's the difference between acceptable and hidden? And what I always like to say is, it's super easy. An acceptable sex relation is somebody or a situation that you are okay with the universe knowing about. A hidden one is if you're in a relationship and you're on a phone and the person walks in the room and you turn the phone over or you shut it off. That's, that's hidden. I don't want somebody to know about this. It doesn't even have to be something physical. It can be something just in that realm of I don't want you, anyone to know about this. Sally, it was hidden because I was lying to her in order to use her in this sexual conduct area in order so that I can go hang out with Mary. Um, so the third column is the third column. Some people have trouble with it, some don't. But the more you do it, the more patterns you're going to see about your own behavior. 
Where was I being selfish? Clearly everyone knows I was being selfish. It was totally dishonest. It was inconsiderate. It was, you know, it bred fear in my life. And because of my character defects, I ended up harming this person. That's just one example of, of the breadth of what we're supposed to be covering within that area. Um, but there's one thing I want to throw in here quick, and we have like two or three minutes left. Um, I think the fourth step is amazing how they did it because no one in this room was ever going to start talking about sexuality first. And we're also not going to talk about fear first because we don't admit any fears. But if we can start with people we hate, with resentments, <laughs> we learn that process and we do four columns and then we've done it. Then we jump to the next one, which is, and we kind of do the fears. And by then we're pretty far through it. We can start stomaching this sexual conduct idea a little bit easier. Uh, there's just two things I want to point out. The next paragraph, we reviewed our own conduct. I would bracket that whole paragraph. This becomes a tool I can use not only to do my sex inventory, but for the rest of my life to figure out if a situation I want to be involved in is selfish, dishonest, and inconsiderate. Um, and they're talking about shaping a sane and sound ideal, which just means healthy and not disease or damage, which I was thinking about today that we're presenting this. And I, I think one of the things I'm the most proud of because of this work that I've had to do so hard is that I am a, I have become a human where I feel respectful of the way I behave today, and I don't feel embarrassed about the way I behave anymore. And for a long time in sobriety, I did because I behaved in a way that was yucky feeling. And the other thing I want to share is that Kevin blew my mind when we started working together about this, when he said that we're not over sex. So I thought I was just like super physically sexual, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm like just like abnormal. And he said, you're that that's not the problem. It's that you have no security. You're under secure and you use sexuality and relationships to make yourself feel okay about yourself because you're not okay on your own. And that was like, oh, like a punch in the gut. I'm so happy I could punch Thank you. Thank you. So one more minute. Um, so page 70, we're going to jump a little bit. But again, that's the sexual conduct inventory. It's pretty straightforward. It doesn't have to be, you know, this Herculean effort. It doesn't have to be gross. We might feel a little gross, but it kind of is what it is. We don't have to make it worse than it is. But I do want to point out that there's sometimes there's things that we do that don't fit into the category of resentments or fears or sexual behavior. Um, and so there is a fourth sheet for just general harms. Who did I harm but not in the sexual area? And my example is uh, who did I harm? Girl in red dress. What did I do? I was in a bar and I threw a bottle across the bar and I hit her in the face. And then I ran out of the bar. I have no idea who girl in red dress is. I look at what I had done, you know, how it affected me in the third column, and then I looked at my character defects, and clearly I was wrong based on my character defects. And I don't know how I would go back and make amends to this person other than doing some other indirect amends. But that is a harm that doesn't quite fit anywhere else. And what's going to happen with most people is you're, when you're struggling and you remember an event and you can't fit it into a category, it doesn't mean you don't have to inventory it. <laughs> so this is the catch-all. It's the best the book can give us. And if it just doesn't quite fit, stick it there, and you will invariably find that you probably harmed somebody in relation to that event. Anything I stole, um, I had like the city of Cleveland because I drove drunk and high all the time. So it, these are people that I'm not angry at, people that I'm not afraid of, people that I wasn't physical with, but people that I've taken from or done something to that I shouldn't have. All right, so let's finish on 71 at the top. If you have already made a decision in step three, 
and an inventory of step four of your grosser handicaps, you have made a good beginning of unblocking yourself from God. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself, and you're fully armed to now go sit down and do your fist step. Awesome. Thank so you. with that, we will uh, be done and give it back 